Good morning. We've been um, studying the speeches recorded in the Book of Acts. We'll do so for another week. We'll take a break and then we'll revisit a series that we did a while ago the, that has been a staple. The, we'll look at the Ten Commitments and we'll, take, we'll do an overview and then we'll take them one at a time. We'll begin that September 13th and then perhaps come back to the study. But for now, we're still looking at the speeches recorded in the Book of Acts. And so far, as we've been charting the growth of the church, everything has happened in Jerusalem. And what's happening as we come to chapter 7, the martyrdom of Stephen, Stephen causes Jewish Christians to be forcibly relocated to other parts of Israel other than Jerusalem and ultimately into the Roman Empire. In fact, the word for sow, the word as in sowing seed, is the same word that's used when these Jewish Christians are forcefully deported to other places in Israel and into the Roman Empire. Uh, from a human perspective, then, we are going to see and hear about people being forced to flee and forcibly dispersed. And from a divine perspective, though, what's going to happen is God is going to be sowing seed and the gospel is going to be bearing fruit. Um, pick it up, pick up the narrative in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Is what it says. Saul was there at Stephen's stoning and execution. Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So what we find out is a violent persecution erupted, and Christians were forced to flee Jerusalem. The apostles remained behind, and as to why they were able to go unscathed, it probably was that they were too popular for the authorities to be able to bring into custody without causing a mass riot. But the Christians were less known, and the persecution broke out against them. Saul, at this point, who was the reigning Pharisee, he began to destroy the church. The word used, the word translated destroy, is a, is a word used for wild beasts tearing at raw flesh. So what we have is Saul going from house to house like a wild animal, dragging men and women to court and throwing them in prison. Saul will make a name for himself by becoming a rabid persecutor of the church, not only staying in Jerusalem, but going into outlying areas. And after Jesus meets Saul on the road to Damascus on one of these tirades, Saul will be transformed by this encounter into the Apostle Paul, and through him, the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. But before that, before the gospel reaches stage three, Jesus talked about Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's where Paul will be the primary channel. Before that, though, the gospel must be carried from Jerusalem 
to Judea and Samaria. And with the dispersal of these Jewish Christians, the ones that are forcefully deported, the fulfillment of the second phase of Jesus' commission occurs. Um, What we find in verse 4 is what it says. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all played, paid close attention to what he said with shrieks. Evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. The persecution that happened in Jerusalem did not hamper the spread of the gospel. In fact, it facilitated it. As Jewish Christians were driven from Jerusalem into other parts of Israel and the Roman Empire, ultimately, they spread the gospel wherever they went. Among those dispersed was Philip. We learned about him when Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food to those who were impoverished. Um, Seven individuals were selected by the apostles to make sure that that oversight was corrected. Stephen was one of them. Philip was another one. And he ended up then being one of the ones who was dispersed. And he went north of Jerusalem to Samaria. To the Jews, Samaritans were both half-breeds and heretics. They were somewhere between Jews and Gentiles. These Samaritans, they were descended from the northern tribes of Israel that went into captivity to the Assyrians in 722 BC. The Assyrians deported some but some were allowed to remain in the northern part of Israel where they grew up. However, they ended up intermarrying with native Canaanite individuals and those who had been trucked or resettled into that region. And that's how they became half-breeds. So they were Jews, but they had intermarried. When the southern kingdom of Judah went into captivity about 150 years later in 597, 586 BC. What happened? These Samaritans, they tried to interfere with the rebuilding of the wall and the rebuilding of the temple and the blood between Jews and Samaritans was not good. Um, What happened is the Philip went there and preached the gospel. They were very receptive. Here's what we find out in Acts 8, verse 9. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God 
and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. The Samaritans believed the gospel and were baptized and mass. In that day, it was a little bit different than in our day, where oftentimes belief in Christ and baptism don't happen at the same time. But in this early stage, they happen coincidentally. So the Samaritans, when they heard about the Messiah through those who had witnessed him and saw some of the miracles, they believed the words they spoke. They believed that Jesus was ushering in a new covenant and that they who had been spiritual outsiders, those doomed never to be part of God's family, understood that they could be. They flocked to the message and responded wholeheartedly to Philip's invitation. Um, one of the Samaritans who was believed, who believed and was baptized was a guy named Simon. He was a well-known, influential, and powerful sorcerer and magician, a wonder worker. Apparently, he was no lightweight. They were still talking about him. About 100 years later, there was this guy named Justin Martyr, who was one He was a a pretty significant Samaritan Jewish Christian who lived in the second century, did some writings. He talks about um, this Simon. He wrote that he was worshipped by almost all of the Samaritans in his day. He was a very significant figure. Apparently, this Simon, this magician, he once visited Rome, and they were very impressed with him. In fact, there was a statue erected to him at one point in Rome that Justin Martyr, who was, I believe, in Rome, he was aware of. And here's what the inscription said, to the holy God, Simon. So this Simon was a very influential, powerful figure. And, and he hears the gospel and believes. However, it seems that his faith in Christ was skin deep and and short-lived. We'll look at that in just a minute, but what ends up happening, let's pick up the narrative in Acts 8, 14, and what happens when the apostles in Jerusalem hear about what's happening in Samaria. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. The the gospel, the gospel of Luke, and he wrote, Luke wrote the gospel, and he wrote Acts, and some had indicated that it really shouldn't be the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because it is the Holy Spirit who seems to be directing and is the principal focus of what is happening in the early church. Normally, in Acts, when somebody responds to the good news and is baptized, they receive the Spirit at that time. And in the this unique juncture in salvation history, 
there was often visible indications that somebody received the Spirit. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. It wasn't as it is in our day, where the church has been in existence for a period of time. What we're hearing about here is a significant, unique juncture in salvation history. It's the birth of the church. And at this point, when somebody receives the gospel, believes, they experience the influence of the Spirit in dramatic ways, in visible ways. And that often happens when they believe and the spiritual phenomena exist immediately. That's not what happened here. It's a little bit unusual. They are baptized and that they believe, but they have to wait a period of time until Peter and John get there. They lay their hands on them, and then these spirit phenomena occurs. They probably spoke in tongues and exhibited some of the things that the apostles exhibited on the day of Pentecost. It was a visible indication that they had been accepted by God. Again, when this is a unique juncture in salvation history, and some things happen in the book of Acts, because they it's at this juncture that we're not going to experience today. You know, when we come to Christ, we put our faith in Christ. For some of us, it's a point in time. For other of us, it's a process. Some of us might have experienced maybe some supernatural type of phenomena, but many of us didn't. We heard the good news. We put our faith in it. It might have been through a prayer. It might have been joining a church. But whatever the case, we believe that Jesus is the one who God sent. We believe the good news and we develop that belief over a period of time. Many of us don't see miracles, but that's really not what faith is about. Our faith goes in the promises that God declares. That's where our faith goes. It's not faith that God will help us do miracles, and we'll see that in a little bit, but faith that God's promises are true. And when Jesus talks about there's a new covenant that he extends to us, that we can be members of God's forever family through faith in Christ. That's what we put our faith in. And whether it results in miracles or not is, at this point, it's, it's not essential. In this point in salvation history, it is. Um, the validation of the apostles, then, is necessary and essential. That's why the Spirit will not be given here until the apostles, Peter and John, travel from Jerusalem, go to Samaria, inspect what's happening, say, you know what, they really do believe, and then they put their hands on them, and then the spirit phenomena is experienced. We pick up the, the narrative. So when the apostles come and do this, Simon is there, and, and he really likes what he sees. Listen to what happens. When Simon saw that the spirit was given, at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the money and said, hey, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. 
you have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Peter's miracles caught, Philip's miracles, excuse me, caught Simon's attention. So did Peter and John when they laid hands. And Simon saw this and saw all these phenomena. And he said, um, he offered the money if they would give him the trade secret of how to dispense the spirit through the laying on of hands. This was in character for those who were sorcerers and magician tricks of the trade were often exchanged for money. So you tell me how to do that trick you do, and I'll give you money, and then and then that's the way it worked. And so they felt like, hey, this is a great trick. And, and Simon could see the commercial possibilities. Boy, if I could do stuff like this, I could really cash in. And, and Peter then rebukes him. That's not what this is about. Um, we can make a couple observations in closing. Let's make two. I think it's interesting that spirit phenomena unites the church at this juncture in time. I want you to think about this. When Jews go, these Jewish, Galilean Jewish Christians and, and Christians from Jerusalem, when they experienced the conversion and they experienced spirit phenomena, it was something that caused them to believe i you know this i i received and these i was able to do this prayer language and i experienced these spirit phenomena and you did and so that it was an indication to them boy this is really something that happened god is really inviting some of us into his family so it was a unifying thing it unified them and and not just unified the jews it unified the Jews with those other groups, be they Samaritans or Gentiles, because they experienced the same thing. So when these Jewish Christians who had no room for Samaritans go to Samaria and see the same spirit phenomena that they experienced, these Samaritans have experienced, so what they understand is, I guess you're one of us. We are part of the same group. And so it indicated to Jews that Samaritans were included, and it indicated with Samaritans that the Jews were included. It's interesting. Spirit phenomena at this point united the church. Oftentimes in our day, it has the opposite impact. There are some who experience this type of spirit phenomena or that, and it's interesting, just an observation, whereas spirit phenomena at this point united the church. In our day, in many cases, the spirit phenomena divides it. I speak in tongues, you don't speak in tongues. I experience this, you don't. Just an observation. The second observation, miracles can assist faith, but never substitute for it. And that's what we learn. Simon's faith is in the miracles, ultimately not in the message. And that was his downfall. Miracles exist for faith. Faith doesn't exist for miracles. Sometimes we believe that if I can 
drum up enough faith, I can kind of cash in this faith for a miracle. Like faith is sometimes seen as a currency we can use to get miracles from God. Maybe if I develop enough faith, I can pray and and I can ward off this virus from hitting my family. And that's the way we tend to think of it. Faith is something that we can cash in, like, like redeemable certificates or something like that. And that's kind of backwards. Uh, miracles exist for faith. When we see the miracles and read about them in the early church, what it is to do for us, it's to help us to believe that these individuals were channeling a message from God. We hear about this message. We understand that Jesus is the Savior of the earth. He is inviting us into internal existence, and we are to understand, hear these miracles, and know that he is making this promise to us. We might not have seen miracles in our life, but it's not about the miracles. It's about the promises that he makes. And and so we're in a place then 2,000 years later where we can read these things, but the promises of God are very relevant to us, whether or not we experience miracles. The fact is, through faith in Christ, 100 years from now, we're going to be with him. Because Jesus came to open the doors of eternal life to all who would believe him. 100 years from now, we're not going to need to rely on miracles or faith. We're going to see him face to face. Can you pray for us? I thank for the way you cause your message to take root. You transmit it through these Galilean Jewish Christians who appeal to some of these Judean Christians, and they are forced to flee, and they go to Samaritans and, and places elsewhere in Israel, and you reach the Apostle Paul, and through him and those whom he reaches, then it moves into the Roman Empire and ultimately in a place that it's recorded, and we can hear about your promises 2,000 years later. And the good news is that, that the promises you make, you're still fulfilling. If we believe in our heart that Jesus is the Christ and you raised him from the dead and we understand the new covenant and we say, I want to be part of your new covenant family that you are inviting us in. And for right now, we take it by faith. And ultimately, we'll experience it face to face as we are not in the place right now where we can see you face to face, where we go through difficult things. Pray that we would continue to come toward you and to you with our requests and our needs, knowing that you care for us and you will give us what we need to persevere and endure. Thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen.